Hello, it's a new year, and so there's a new series of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. The show is now four years old, but for listeners who might be new to all this, the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. My guest this week is the excellent Keith Brimer-Jones. Now, Keith has been a ballet dancer, a frontman in a nearly famous band, and a YouTube sensation. However, he's best known as a potter and a judge on the hugely popular The Great Pottery Throwdown, which is currently showing on Channel 4. His handmade ceramics, which include the best-selling word range, have been stocked in major stores, including Habitat, Laura Ashley, and Heels. His warm and often confessional biography, Boy in a China Shop, is just out in paperback. It tells a story of a life that is seen him bullied at school, be attacked by a lion and raise the roof at the Marquee Club. However, the thread that holds the whole thing together is clay. Keith, thank you very much for doing this. Well done. What an introduction. Brilliant. <laughs> Was it reasonably accurate? <laughs> reasonably accurate. Yeah, yeah. Reasonably yeah. accurate. Okay. Great. Good, good. <laughs> um, we try and give our listeners a bit of context when we do these things. It goes back to the days we used to record in people's studios. Could you give us a sense of where you are and how you work? Because you're at home, but you're in your workshop, I suspect, looking behind you on Zoom. Well, no. So this is my studio, but this is upstairs where the computers are and downstairs is where the clay is. And actually, um, it's my studio. Uh, we're, we're soon to be moving to North Wales in Pacelli. So yeah, um, we're, we're kind of slowly packing up, ready for the big move. And when is that happening? Well, there's pigeons living in the place we've bought so far. Right. Uh, it's a huge chapel in North Wales, and we're getting work done to it as we speak. It's a grade two listed building. So there's various applications that we have to go through. So lots of heritage aspects of the building. Hopefully we should be in there before Christmas this year. So yeah, it's going to be a big move. Why North Wales? It's quite a long way from where you are currently <laughs> because you're in Whitstable at the moment, right? Yeah, that's right. One of the reasons is because of the building. We were looking at various places to live and it was all about the building for us. So we were we were looking at old petrol stations, libraries, anything that right. really wasn't a house and was big enough <laughs> for me to have my pottery studio in the same place. And I think, you know, like a lot of people through this pandemic and through this lockdown that we've just been through, we've realised that actually we could be anywhere and we could live anywhere. Uh, as long as you've got decent Wi-Fi, <laughs> one can go anywhere. So we saw this building. It's called Capel Salem, uh, Salem's Chapel. That really appealed for starters, especially to my partner. And uh, so we went to have a look at it and it's got one hall that will be my studio, my pottery studio, and another hall that we'll live in. And that's basically it. Yeah. But lots to do, lots to do, yeah. Very good. I mean, congratulations on the book, Keith. Oh, great, thanks. It's very personal, <laughs> regularly heartwarming. Yeah. As I said in the intro, there are a number of themes running through it, your music career, your relationship with your family. But the strongest thread is obviously clay. And I find the opening chapter really fascinating. It talks about, well, it describes you throwing a, a pot. I mean, how does it feel when you're making a pot on the wheel, I wonder? Oh, wonderful. It feels wonderful. It's been my desk job for over 40 years. And you're quite right to say that clay is the thread throughout the book because clay is the thread throughout my life. I mean, it's been a companion of mine through the good times and the bad times. And that's kind of essentially how I see clay and me as a potter, as a craftsman in pottery. It's been a constant companion. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful feeling. And it's where I think the best and the most when I'm sitting on a wheel. Absolutely. Interesting. 
What do you think about? Absolutely everything and anything. Right. I think what's transpired over the years is that um, because back in the day, as you obviously read in the book, that, you know, I was a studio potter and I was throwing thousands of pieces at a time. And I think that what's happened is that my body has learnt to realise that when I sit on the wheel, that's the most creative part of my day. Mm. And my brain has sort of almost subconsciously goes into overdrive when I'm sitting on the wheel. I think of new ranges, I think of new ideas, obviously new projects to do with television now, and new books, absolutely everything and anything. It's such a wonderful meditative experience throwing on the wheel, especially if you're a production thrower, because you're essentially throwing the same thing time and time again. And what that allows you to do is, quite frankly, go into a kind of a a meditative state and, and your hands do become your eyes. And, you know, it's that feeling, that sensual feeling of the clay that you become so familiar with. That it allows your brain and Radio 4, I must say, to go off <laughs> onto into a tangent. Yeah, it's a great place to be, yeah. And you talk about the clay being an extension of you when you're on the wheel, yeah. which I, I rather like. Yeah. Why did you decide to write the book now? Was it because you had time during the pandemic? Because my agent said it would be good <laughs> for you to write a book. No, quite <laughs> frankly, I mean, it was. And I thought, well, why not? Because it's a very kind of, dare I say, unconventional way of going through my career. And I say that now because most people, you would go to university, would study ceramics, and then possibly get a job after that. Whereas I had a very old traditional training of which, alas, there aren't that many of those kind of opportunities about. But I literally started as a clay boy in a pottery, shoveling clay, making the tea, and worked my way up that way. And and I think for me, it's not for everyone. University is a fantastic opportunity for so many people. But for me, this way really, really did click and it really worked. And there's nothing like working with a material, a natural material, day in, day out, to really understand what that material can do and what you can do with it, quite frankly, yeah. Mm. And when did you first fall in love with clay, Keith? I think you made an owl. Yeah. An owl seemed, seemed, to, seemed to feature large yeah. in your first ever experience of the material. God knows why it was an owl, but it was. <laughs> and it was at school, 11 years old, first year of secondary school. I have dyslexia. And back in the 80s, as you may know, dyslexia wasn't really a recognised kind of condition. And you were just considered thick, basically, <laughs> when you were at school in the 80s and you, you had trouble reading and, and writing. And clay for me, looking back now through hindsight, clay for me was just the perfect medium to express myself. I don't know whether you, many of your listeners will know, but you know, obviously being dyslexic, you have a, a much better affinity with shape, form and volume. Most architects are dyslexic. It's a common knowledge. Um, well, we, we've had a huge number of our guests. We've done 88 of these and a large proportion have been diagnosed with dyslexia. So I think our listeners will be familiar. Well, yeah. And, and being someone who tends to sort of run his life by the glass is always half full rather than half empty. Mm. For me, dyslexia is just really another way of looking at the world. And it's no surprise that most creative types are dyslexic because you are drawn to this other way, this alternative way of trying to make a living, basically. Do you think that dyslexia shaped your life in some way? I would go as far as to say, if I didn't have dyslexia, I might not be doing what I'm doing now. And that, for me, is another massive mantra in my life, is a pessimist's problem is an optimist's opportunity. And it is taking those things that you are dealt with, the cards that you're dealt with in life, 
and trying to turn those into a positive and trying to turn those into something that really works for you and hopefully the rest of the world, the wider world, yeah. Because the other thing that comes out in the book, we was going to talk about your dyslexia, which is great, but um, you combine that with OCD, seemingly. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how that manifests itself. Yeah, well, being a production thrower, it's brilliant being OCD because um, <laughs> everything is so repetitive and to the point where, and never forget, I was doing a job for um, a woman called Anushka Hempel, who used to be yes. one of the Bond girls yeah, back yeah. in the day. And she... Big hotelier. Yeah, that's exactly it, the Hempel mm-hmm. Hotel. And I was making ceramics for her and it was stipulated within the order that I wasn't allowed to deviate by any more than two millimetres with the ceramics that I was making. All these incredible orchid pots that uh, festooned the vestibule of one of her hotels. And lo and behold, I was able to do that because, yeah, I've got OCD. Brilliant. <laughs> Maybe not as much as um, as Anushka Hempel. It was said that she used to... <laughs> She used to tour the rooms of the hotel and measure the gap between the pillows and and things like that. Quite incredible, but um, but it's that it's that attention to detail and that attention to your craft, which actually being OCD is rather it can kind of help. Yeah, <laughs> mm. the book is full of surprises. I'd suggest <laughs> one of the ones for me was that uh, when you were a child, when you were younger. You were heavily into ballet dancing. You were doing competitions and things. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, how good were you? Yeah, no, I was uh, doing all the examinations, intermediate examinations, and I did actually audition for the Royal Ballet School at one point, but they took one look at the size of my feet at the age of about 11 and thought, because um, apparently you can tell by the size of your feet what kind of stature you're going to be. And unfortunately, back in the 80s, bricklaying ballet dancers weren't really the rage. Um, <laughs> they probably are now, but... Um, it was an incredible indoctrination, really, into discipline. Mm. There is nothing like dance to really discipline in a physical way for your body to do what your mind tells it to do. And, you know, I did ballet from the age of three to about 18. I think I gave up ballet a bit earlier, but I used to do ballet, tap, highland, country, the whole lot. And I finally gave up all the dancing when I was about 18. But what it enabled me to do is to really learn about physical discipline and i think that really came to the fore when i became a production thrower absolutely Mm. yeah Mm. Yeah. i mean there are a few shades of billy elliott here because your father (laughs) was a a very keen footballer yeah and very talented footballer by all accounts he was yeah absolutely yeah and presumably he would have wanted you to um to follow in his boots i was press ganged into playing for the london welsh football club only in the fourths because i was pretty useless to be honest a left back defence was my uh, was my, was my go to position, and I I played for a couple of seasons. But really, you know, as a seventeen eighteen year old, just about to embark and joining a band, Saturday afternoons on a wet cold day held better places for me to be. Really, um, so uh, yes, I didn't do much football, but it was a good time. And I sort of look back on those days as um, with real fondness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Yeah. yeah. What were you like at school, Keith? I mean, it seems that primary school was pretty idyllic, but things changed a bit after that. Well, they always do, don't they? When you go to secondary school, I yeah. So. I was pretty weedy. I was pretty stick thin. I kept myself to myself, really. I certainly wasn't in with the in crowd. Not until maybe the sixth form, uh, I sort of started sort of diversifying in different social social groups around the school. But I found it hard, really, and uh, pretty uninspiring school. It was definitely fashioned towards a certain type of pupil, and that certainly wasn't me. Although I say it was uninspiring, 
We all remember a good influential teacher at school, and mine was Mr. Mortman, my art teacher, who gave me my first lump of clay. So you could argue that actually school inspired me to become what I am today. So there you go. I mean, about this time, you write that you dreamed of being a long-distance lorry driver. It seems to me there are two sides to you. I mean, you obviously love performing. I'll probably come on to that a bit later. Yeah. But you seem to like the solitude as well. Yeah. There are occasional mentions of lack of confidence too. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think originally, I think the lack of confidence came from finding it pretty hard to read and write. Obviously, I'm pretty competent now. But back in the day, I think that really did knock my confidence. And as I say, you know, School in those days was kind of fashioned towards a certain type of person, an academic kind of leaning. And so therefore, you know, you were scrubbed out of the plan for the education system. So yeah, confidence, the lack of it was very prevalent in the first fair few years of my secondary school, definitely. Mm. Until, well, until I sort of joined a band and and I remember, uh, you know, there were certain epiphany moments that boosted my confidence. And one of them was obviously touching a piece of clay and the teacher remarking at the time boy you seem to be quite good at this and quite frankly it was the first time anyone had played me a compliment uh, at school and so I thought right well I'll carry on with this and I duly did yeah so the art room and the wheel I mean it was a a place of retreat oh absolutely I was in Mm. there before school during school during the lunch hour after school and when I got into the sixth form I used to bunk off school as probably most of us did but I'd, i instead of bunking off and going down the local high street i would go to the vna in south kensington or north kensington and i would reside there for the whole day just literally drawing and looking at pots i absolutely loved it yeah but there is a certain part of me that likes solitude and for years when i was a production thrower in my studio in highgate in north london um the solitude was actually wonderful yeah mm, mm. i mean there's lots of joy in the book, and I guess in your life too, obviously. Yeah. But there is also this seam, if you don't mind me saying, seam of melancholy. I mean, you watch your grandfather fall down the stairs to his death as a child. Yeah. I mean, that must have quite a profound effect. It's incredible, isn't it? We all have these situations and instances in our lives, I'm sure. And um, when looking back on that, and it was only when I really started writing the book. I mean, I've had many years of therapy over the years, Mm. but it was looking back and writing the book that I realized that all happened around the age of 11. So around that time, you know, I saw, as you say, my first dead person, my grandfather, and I was starting school, secondary big school, as they say. So there was a lot going on around that time. And, you know, when you look back at a certain period of your life, anyone's life, you can think, ah, right, okay, that was a really significant, arguably traumatic time in one's life. And and, and I think that was definitely a time for me, uh, yeah, going to secondary school and, and all that upheaval and obviously changing from a, a child to a young person, really. Um, yeah, yeah. And it is quite traumatic for a lot of people without sounding like the violins are playing, but it is a changeable time in someone's life, definitely. Yeah. And how has the therapy helped, Keith, over the years? Oh, it's amazing. I, it's not for everyone, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm not in therapy anymore. It initially started because um, of my mother's death. And um, I was getting these things called panic attacks. 
And I say, I, I word it like that because I literally had no idea what was happening to me physically. Yeah. And I was getting these panic attacks. Sorry, Keith, but what did happen physically? Well, tight chested, uh, short of breath, right. feeling that I had to get out of a certain room or a certain situation. And, and it was very, very strange for me to feel like that because I'd often thought of myself as someone completely in control physically, probably due to the dance and this, that and the other. And for something emotionally to affect one's physical self, I found incredibly strange and almost nonsensical. And it wasn't until I spoke to various people, they said, well, you're having panic attacks. Your mother's just died. It's quite a traumatic thing. And it was suggested that I went to um, bereavement counselling with a wonderful organisation called Cruise. And this lovely woman used to come round and literally sit in the workshop. Because another thing that one has to realise is that I was pretty much a workaholic. I'd literally get up at five and I was I was like a machine. And uh, so she would come to my studio and we'd sit in a semi-lit room and we'd talk endlessly about what was going on for me. And then I think the bereavement counselling I found very, very beneficial and I just, you know, carried that on after a number of years, mm. uh, just in, in sort of general therapy, really, which I, I found really fascinating. Yeah. Because the section on your mother's death, it's kind of heartbreaking. She died when you were in your 20s. She was only yeah. 55. Yeah. You quite obviously adored her, but you make it clear by the same token that she had issues yeah. with alcohol. Yeah. You seem to have a tricky relationship with your father. Would that be fair to say? Uh yeah, and never more so towards the end of his life. Mm. I mean, towards the end of his life, he obviously suffered from dementia. So that was very hard anyway, because um, there were certain things in your life that you would explain to him that he literally wouldn't understand or recognise. But he was fantastic as a father when we were growing up, but he was very, very obsessed with sport, which is great. And if you went along and played sport with him, it couldn't be better. But if your interests sort of uh, lent somewhere else, then it wasn't something that he would really engage with. Although mm. he did he did used to um, come to quite a lot of gigs when I used to be in a band uh, because he said that it, they reminded him of his days in Amsterdam in the National Service. Uh, he was stationed in Amsterdam um, back in the 50s. And uh, he used to love going down to the docks and, and, yeah. and seeing all the kind of, shall we say, colourful life. And uh, it, it, that kind of reminded him of that. But no, my mother was that typical stay-at-home mum as we were growing up in the 70s, uh, very good at baking, cooking, all the things that mums do. And then I think she really did suffer from empty nest syndrome. Mm. As we grew older and we left the home, she felt what was going on for her in her life. And I think, as I say, bereavement counselling taught me a lot about her as a person, not just as my mother. And again, there was a lot of trauma early on in her life, which I explain in the book. And I think that probably after we'd left home, I think she then had the space and the time to really think about and contemplate that. And I think that put her in a sort of a downward spiral of depression. I think that's really what it was. Did you blame your father for her death? Um, in some ways, yeah, I did. There's certain situations in one's life that you only miss the things when they've gone. Mm. And then it's obviously far too late. And I think in my father's case, that was definitely the case. Yeah, I try now to go through life without too many regrets. You know, in hindsight, oh, I could have done that better. But you don't want to go through life with huge, huge regrets. And I think uh, that was definitely a major one for him. Um, not really seeing what was going on. 
within their marriage, really. And I vowed that I'd never do that in my own life. So he taught me something, really. <laughs> mm. Should we talk about clay again? Yes, let's uh, do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, because discovering the work of Lucy Ree at oh, Sharon well, B&A yeah, yeah. was obviously hugely inspiring. Indeed. I'm interested, though, you didn't want to become an artist potter like her. You were more interested in production work. I mean, you talk a lot about Isaac Button, who could famously throw a ton of clay in a day. And it seemed to me, work-wise, he was your hero. Yeah, he was. I remember seeing this really, really grainy black and white video of this bloke that looked like something out of a Hovis advert, you know, smoking a pipe with a flat cap, always shirt and tie. And it was his relationship, or what seemed to be his relationship through the film, his relationship with the clay. It just seemed to be so easy. He seemed to be so in tune with the material itself. And I found that fascinating. And I I remember seeing that clip, well, when I was about 13 or 14. And um, obviously, video wasn't around then. So it would have been a grainy film in some museum that I would have seen. I think it was Ditchling Museum, funnily enough, just north of Brighton. And I saw that and it just really astounded me, the natural way he was working with the clay. It was quite incredible. Yeah. So were you always determined to be a production potter? The art side of ceramics didn't interest you in the same way? Well, I mean, it's just, I imagine, or I I presume now, looking back, it was just the fact that I went to work for a pottery that did production throwing. And that's the kind of market and the territory of ceramics that I fell into at the time. I mean, going back to sort of either, you know, leaving school, going to university or whatever, maybe I would have had a better idea of conceptualising ceramics and pottery and using that to go into a more of an art form. But for me at the time, working in that pottery, being a production thrower seemed the way to go. And that's what I've basically done. And the irony now is that obviously moving to this studio in North Wales, hopefully by the end of this year, I'll have a big enough space to really explore different areas of ceramics, which I'm really, really excited about. Mm, interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it'll be really the first time that I've really been able to sort of dive in and explore that kind of area of ceramics. Yeah. Hope you're enjoying the episode so far. I thought I ought to let you know that the Material Matters Fair is returning to the Barge House from the 20th to the 23rd of September. Each of the five floors will be doing something slightly different, but all will be related to materials. There's also a talks programme, some returning exhibitors, so the Wood Awards will be there once again, as will the excellent Hagen Hinsdale, for example. And there'll be some exciting new names, such as Nova Vita Design. If you're interested in taking part, do drop us a line at hello at materialmatters.design. That's hello at materialmatters.design. Hope to see you there. The other thread that runs through the book is music. Yeah. And uh, you were a lead singer of The Wigs, uh, yeah. a very nearly <laughs> successful, I mean, what do we call it? Punk band, I guess? Yeah, it was post-punk, really. You know, yeah. the 80s, yeah. You know, back in the 80s, London had an incredibly vibrant live music scene and we were able to extol our artistic delights on various audiences around London. It was a great time and place to be. It was wonderful. And and I often say there's nothing like being in a band for getting yourself into very weird and wonderful situations. <laughs> um, it was wonderful. Yeah, the music was great. And the, the whole sort of lifestyle was was fantastic at the time. Yeah. So you're a kind of potter by day and, and rock star by night. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. You were briefly, and I would love to have seen some photos, you briefly a new romantic. Did you do the whole tartan thing? Oh, I, oh my God, did I? Yeah. No, I did the whole <laughs> tartan thing, the asymmetric haircut. And uh, there, <laughs> there, was a, there was a moment uh, in my life that I came to the end of my new romanticism when I was standing at a bus stop at five in the morning after being at a party in Wilsdon Green. Uh, and I'd be, I'd been beaten up for the, for the fifth time in a row in the last like month. And I was there standing at this bus stop in the pouring rain. And this woman turned to me and said, are you all right, love? And I had a fat lip and a black eye and I was in my tartan gear. And I just thought, you know, I can't do this anymore. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to have to change my, my fashion sense. <laughs> self-preservation. But, yeah. Well, that's it. So definitely self-preservation. Yeah. 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 And, but you got played by, by Janice Long on the Radio One show. I'm guessing that she used to do in the evenings. Well, and- that was wonderful. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. got picked up by Janice long and uh there we were down at the maid Vale studios in west london and uh yeah it was a great experience mm. and it was just a great way of meeting other like-minded people at the time and um you know uh, as you quite rightly say pottery and the music biz doesn't really go together i met someone i won't mention his name but someone quite famous a few years ago who we used to play with many, many years ago. And I met him on Archway Road, believe it or not, which is probably the graveyard of all failed bands <laughs> in the bedsit land of Archway Road. And I remember meeting him and I said, uh, oh yeah, great. And he, he recognised me. He said, oh, you know, automatically said to me, what, what, so what band are you in now? And I said, well, no, I'm, I actually own my own ceramics company now. And I remember him just phasing out. And his next words were, well, it's good to see you, Keith. I'll see you later. And it was like, it literally had no idea what I was talking about. It was a wonderful moment, actually. It was really funny. Yeah. I watched a clip of, I think it's from 2011. It must have been a, a Wigs reunion gig on yes, YouTube yes. last night. Never mind. Sorry. No, I, I researched his <laughs> interviews hard. And uh, it's quite a different persona, Keith, that you have on stage. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because uh, a couple of years ago, we did a gig at the Hope and Anchor in Islington. Right. We were asked along. And it was around the time when Mel, Melanie Sykes, was um, was presenting on the, uh, on the show, the third series. And it was brilliant. And I said to Mel, she doesn't go out much, actually. She's a very insular person. She likes to mm. keep herself to herself. And uh, actually, I said to Mel, I said, do you want to come along to a gig at the Hope and Anchor? And she came along and she absolutely loved it to the point where I thought, well, steady on, you know, we weren't that good. But she absolutely loved it. And one of the things she remarked upon was, wow, I literally didn't know you had that side of you in you. That was quite incredible. Yeah, yeah. So it is, it is a very different me, yeah. I don't know how much detail you want to go into, but you could tell us a little bit about bollock biting. Oh, <laughs> Well, okay, so back in the day, um, we, we were obviously doing the, the regular uh, gig circuit. I'll keep it short. And, uh, and you know, there were a couple of reviews coming out saying, oh, you know, they're another navel-gazing, staring-at-the-floor, sort of self-indulgent band. They're a bit boring. So I thought, well, you know, we need to, sp- <laughs> we need to spice this up a bit. And so we would do a horrendous version of Wild Thing at the end of every gig. Mm. It gave me the opportunity to go out into the audience. And at first I used to go out and, you know, if there were any sort of females in the audience that took a shine to the band or whatever, I would probably go over and do something probably sexually inappropriate these days uh, (laughs) just for a laugh. And then, you know, obviously the misogynistic kind of um, comments came out. 
So I then started going after the blokes instead. So it it all became quite an act. And uh, yeah, it was uh, quite an unusual thing to do. I think really it stems back from the dancing days. I've never really had a problem with physicality, but I've never really had a problem with physical embarrassment either. It's it's just never, never occurs to me. But, you know, one has to realise that it does occur to other people. So you have to be mindful. But for me personally, physicality and embarrassment aren't really a, a thing. You are what you are. You are who you are. And um, may you sort of be happy in your own skin. Really? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you were desperately close to being successful. Oh. You know, I mean, on, on many levels, you were successful. Why do you think you didn't quite make it in the end? For anyone who is in a band will completely understand this. Basically, your future isn't really in your hands. It's in the hands and the lap of the gods with other people. And after a fashion of so many kind of near misses and disappointments, you get to a stage where, well, I, I certainly did personally, where you're in your 20s and you're thinking, well, hang on a minute, this doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. And life's too short to flog a dead horse, really. So um, I obviously had the ceramics in parallel, working in parallel with the mm. band. And um, that was something that I could really concentrate and focus on. Mm. And that's what I did. It was sad to see it go. And I did love that part of my life. But um you know that there, there comes a stage where you do mature and you grow up and you realize that uh, yeah there's more to life than other people taking control of your future really mm. i think that's basically what happened with me yeah mm. so i i keep digressing we, we'll get back to ceramics again now no that's fine you did a apprenticeship at hairfield but yeah. was it always your ambition to work for yourself um again we all have them these algorithms of life that presents us with decisions, some of them more monumental than others. And I got a job at Harefield because I needed a job and it being in clay was just fantastic. It was actually the decision was made for me because my ex-bosses at the time resided in Harefield along the canal. There was a pottery there, which was fantastic. But they decided to move to Scotland and not just Scotland, but a place called Tain, which is 20 miles north of Inverness. Mm. I mean, bloody miles. That's north. Absolutely <laughs> miles away. That's north. Yeah. And I certainly didn't want to go traipse all the way up there to follow the job. And so the only thing really open to me, especially in and around London, was to start my own studio. Mm. And that's what it did. That's where I'd say, dare I say, uh, the rest is history because it was getting my own pottery together, uh, my own studio, that really changed quite fundamentally the way I lived, the way I thought, and certainly the way I worked. Yeah, it was it was a great place to start, really. Yeah. You were throwing everything by hand for some huge retailers, as we said, Heels, yeah. uh, for instance. Yeah. And then the business changed. Can you describe the moment you realised you had to transform your business model and, and make pots in, I don't know, China and India with Make International? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, basically, I'd been throughout the 90s, been designing, making and delivering ceramics ranges for, as you quite rightly say, Laura Ashley, Heels, Habitat, even Marks and Spencers. And um, unfortunately, towards the end of the 90s, you know, the margin for the kind of ceramics that I was doing, the market was literally dying out. The margin was getting smaller and smaller. And I was towards the end putting stuff in kilns that I knew was costing me money. And I remember one poignant moment when a buyer from Laura Ashley came to see me. I'd been working with Laura Ashley for a good four or five years on particular different ranges and, and things for them. 
And she came in with this god-awful mug, probably from China, funnily enough, plonked it down on the bench and said, look, if you can do this for a pound, we can still work with you. And it, it literally wasn't worth putting on the kettle and making a cup of tea. So yeah, I knew my number was up in that particular market that I'd found myself in. Similarly, I should imagine a bit like Isaac Button many, many years before me. You know, that market was slowly dying out because there just wasn't that margin to make a living from. I soon realised that I would have to not only design a range that would be ongoing and wasn't seasonal with a major department store or major retailer, and also, second to that, design and make something that wasn't by just my fair hand, that was made in a factory. And lo and behold, I looked at various options and I met my business partner at a trade fair. And again, another sort of chapter in my life began. Yeah. Was it difficult to stop making yourself? It was putting you under physical pressure, I know. No, it wasn't actually. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> quite often people say to me, oh, you really sold out, you know, you yeah. now make in China. Well, Do they? That's interesting. Well, yeah, no, they did. And um, because they have this kind of romantic perception that you sit on the wheel and uh, it's all nice and cosy in your pottery. And But no, I mean, anxiety probably ruled my life for, for quite a lot of it because you're making pots to literally live by. And it, it did become quite tedious. You became almost trapped by your own sort of talents and success in a way. And I knew that couldn't go on. I mean, now the irony being that, you know, Make International is a an entity in itself. And I now have time to make things in my studio that I want to make. And that's a wonderful feeling. So no, I don't miss the getting up at five and making thousands of pieces under the umbrella of anxiety anymore. It's much better. And, and I think, you know, if my business partner had maybe sort of propositioned me about making ceramics, I don't know, anywhere else other than China, maybe I would have had second thoughts. But, you know, as I quite often say to people, the clue is in the name, China, as in China. It's probably arguably the best porcelain in the world. And the history of Chinese ceramics goes way back, far farther than any European ceramics, especially in an industrial setting. And it's amazing over there and incredible. But having said all that, I'm now getting into a, an opportunity and a possibility of producing ceramics back in the UK, which is something that I would really, really love to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In, in Stoke-on-Trent or somewhere else? Could be Stoke-on-Trent. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to do that. But anyone who knocks ceramics coming from China really doesn't understand the background or the history of Chinese ceramics. So, you know, um, I don't really have much time for that kind of criticism. No, fair enough. I mean, at one point you write that you're as proud of the mugs you made in China as you are of the ones you made yourself. Is that really true? Yes, it is. Because one, because the quality is fantastic, but I would say that, wouldn't I? But Dom and I are both very, very, funnily enough, we come from incredibly different backgrounds, but we are very practically minded. And I literally work on the factory floor in China with the Chinese workers. And the, one of the reasons I do that is because I love the process. I love the material, obviously, but it has to be right and it has to be correct. I'm not one of these pilot high, sell it cheap types because predominantly my background is a craft. I am a craftsperson. I'm a potter. That's what it says on my passport. And so therefore, for me to completely ignore any due process in production would be, it's unthinkable really. And, um, you know, we have a team out in China that are fantastic and the ceramics and as I say, the material itself 
is literally second to none. And I absolutely love it. And the fact that we now sell to over 40 countries around the world, this simple word range, it's something to be proud of because it's come from a craft ceramic pottery background and it all comes from my wheel in Whitstable. Mm. Uh, mm. And that's where it started. So yeah, I, I am incredibly proud of that. Yeah. Shall we talk about TV stardom yeah. <laughs> and, and the great yeah. pottery throwdown? How did this come about? You did a pastiche of an Adele yeah. song on YouTube, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, the algorithm of life, who knew? And this is the wonder of, of a sort of weird and wonderful career. Dom phoned me up one day. He was trawling the internet, looking for ideas to promote the company. And he came across this Adele video. Uh, him being on the spectrum, loves a spreadsheet, loves a number. <laughs> Basically, he'd seen the amount of hits this video had had. And it's a very surreal video. It's, it's called Rolling in the Deep, which is one of Adele's songs. And it was one of the most watched videos on YouTube, music videos um, ever for quite a time. But it was set, and this is what gets me, it was set in a big stately home, which with Dom's background said to me, my aunt has a house like that in Norfolk. <laughs> um, and, uh, and he said, well, and you used to be a singer, uh, why don't we go up there and uh, and do a, a, a an Adele spoof of this video? And it had broken crockery in the original video. Uh, it's quite surreal. And so there we off, we trotted with this production team, a wonderful woman called Vanessa, and we created this video and it kind of went viral. And uh, it just so happened we were working with this woman, businesswoman over in America who just happened to be uh, friends with Rich McCarrow from Love Productions, who I think I believe was selling the bake-off to various networks in America. He said, I'm really looking for another format. You know, I've done the sewing bee and I've done the bake-off. Uh, and she said, well, I'm working with this toff uh, bloke and this cross-dressing nutter bloke. <laughs> and they've just, done the, they've just done this video. He goes back to the uh, to, to the hotel room, watches the video, and literally phones me up from the US and said, do you want to be a judge on this new program I'm putting together? And what I love about the story is that it literally had nothing to do with me uh, uh, and my talents as a potter. No. And it had everything to do with me singing an Adele song rather badly in a wig and, and a dress. It's just incredible. Yeah. Did you immediately want to be on TV? Did you have any qualms? I didn't have any qualms, uh, you know, obviously being in a band, you know, being on a stage that never really phased me. I did have qualms about pottery on telly. Really? Really? That is that going to work? Surely it's like watching paint dry. How could we make that remotely exciting? Because, you know, obviously being a potter, you realize the, the amount of processes that goes into making something. And how the hell we would visualize that in a light entertainment program was beyond me. But there's the wonder of editing and the beauty of telly that we managed, or Love Productions, I should say, managed to, I hope, come across a sort of a program that's light entertainment for sure, but also extols the virtues of the talent within the craft. And, and that was very, very important to me. I didn't want to make a television program where you set people up to fail because I love what I do and I wouldn't want to be disrespectful to the process it then entails to, to make something. And, you know, he convinced me over a few bottles of wine, I think, <laughs> that no, he wanted to make a program that really showed the talents of the potters themselves. And uh, lo and behold, I think that's what we've managed to do. Yeah, I'm, re I'm really proud of it, actually. It's great. It's great. Mm. Uh, as an interviewer, I'm contractually obliged to ask you about the crying 
<laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Which I'm sure you get asked every other day, but yeah. um, but but I have to, otherwise people would would ask why didn't you ask about the crying? I mean, did it come as a shock when it, it first happened? I guess the amateur psychologist would probably put it down to the death of your mother. Is this rolled into the moving you to tears? Yeah, no, I I don't think it is down to that so much. It, it really without again without the violins going. I'm a 40-year overnight success. You know, I've been doing this for so long and I realise how hard it is to achieve that visual concept that's in your head out with a bag of clay on a bench into something remotely that uh, looks close to what you had in your head. I do realise how hard that is. And I think for the potters on the show to come on to a national television programme and do something that they really love and that's quite personal to them... And then to be judged for that every week is an amazingly brave thing to do. When they come up to me on that judging bench and they've ticked all those boxes, I can't help but get emotional for them. And because I realise how incredibly hard it is to actually do that. It's a wonderful experience. And um, no, I didn't know I was going to be so emotional. I literally didn't realise that. The first 10 minutes of the first episode of the first series I started blubbing in front of one of the contestants. And I remember hearing in my earpiece, the director going, my God, one of the judges is crying. This is TV gold. <laughs> and uh, and I, no, I, I literally don't know when that's going to happen. I, do, I don't know when that's going to happen. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's great, really. Uh, and again, as I say, coming back to the physical embarrassment, I'm not embarrassed by it. I'm very comfortable in my own skin. I'm not unstable. I'm not any of these things that may be said about me. I do genuinely feel for the contestants and I genuinely do adore what they make when it works. It's fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Has being on TV changed the way people treat you? Ah. (laughs) Yeah, it has. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting, you know, doing television, you obviously sticking your head above the parapet. You become public property, although you don't obviously in your personal life. And, um, You know, lots of things get commented on. If people don't know something, they'll make it up. And again, I'm pretty unoffendable as a person. And maybe that's because of the career I've had or the life I've had. And it doesn't really bother me too much. But no, fame being on the television does definitely affect you. You just get noticed every single place you go to. And I I remember, I think it was after the second series, after the final, I had to go to, funnily enough, the studio in China And I was at uh, Terminal 5, uh, Heathrow Airport, and I must have taken about 33 selfies between the terminal (laughs) and the plane. Yeah, incredible. And you just have to be aware of that, and you have to respect the people that really acknowledge you and that come up to you. It's a wonderful thing, really. But yeah, it can get a bit on top now and again, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Clay. It's having a bit of a moment, isn't it? I went round the London Art Fair last yeah. week and it was loads of clay. Hey, hey it's wh- the new black, I tell you. Well, it is. Yeah. What do you put that down to, I wonder? I honestly think uh, we live in this kind of digital age of ours and we either swipe left or swipe right and click on this mouse and, you know, download such and such. And I think it's a complete and utter antidote to that kind of way of living. And there is, dare I say the word, but there is a definite mindfulness to it to the process, to making. And, you know, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, I went to a pottery class and it was three hours long and, oh, well, the time just flew by. I didn't even know what time it was. It was it was amazing. I, and I'm literally not surprised by that because you are there at one with yourself 
with this material in front of it. It doesn't have to be clay, but it could be wood, paint, whatever. But it's that creative process with yourself and a natural material that is so fascinating to a lot of people. And dare I say, really important to a lot of people as well. And it's, uh, no, it's incredible. It's, uh, it, it has really struck a chord with the UK population. Definitely. You're right. Mm. Yeah. The book finishes with a chapter devoted to connection. Yeah. Can we unpick that? What is connection about for you and, and why does it matter? Well, I believe that connection is all about being aware and being self-aware and being aware of what's around you and the people that surround you. And, you know, there are connections in everything. And it comes back to that kind of algorithm of life that we all have. And these connections that you make with places, with, dare I say, objects or with people, and those connections, if you're aware of them, can seriously change the way, the direction of your life or the way you feel about something. Being connected to your surroundings is, for me, very, very important. And I know it is for my partner as well. And actually moving to Wales and being connected to the landscape there, we're finding out is truly incredible. It's wonderful. Yeah. And another source of inspiration. Yeah. 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 Our time is up. Thank you yeah. very much for everything. Really appreciate it because we had some technical faults before you were, you were completely <laughs> wonderful to deal with. It was yeah. really kind. Plans for the future. You're going out on tour. You, I mean, you have this book and I guess you're touring the book. Yeah. So on the back of the book, we've sold quite a few copies, unbelievably. Uh, it's been amazing. And so Fain, an organisation that put on sort of talking tours uh, around up and down the country in various theatres approached me and said, look, we think it would be a wonderful vehicle for you to tell people more about your life and put on a bit of a show. So mm. yeah, um, there won't be any bollock biting. I, just, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I hasten to add, so I can, I can uh, assure the audience there won't be any of that. But, uh, but there will be a, a, probably a different side to me as well as the one people know. So yeah, hopefully it'll be interesting for people to come along. And you'll be making, you'll be at a wheel? or I will, how, how I will be. Work? There will be a wheel on stage, yeah. And uh, there will be various things that I do on the wheel. And uh, yeah, hopefully people will find it interesting. It's a great way of me explaining my creative process, really, which mm. is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And when does that kick off? So that kicks off towards the end of May and it goes through, we'll be on the road, 20 dates up and down the country until the end of June. Uh, 30th of June, I think, is our last date. Yeah. Very good. And people yeah. can find details on your website, presumably. They can do. Yes. Thanks. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. No, that's a pleasure. <laughs> it's a pleasure. <laughs> that was really wonderful. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much for your time. Cheers, Grant. Cheers. Cheers. See you later. <laughs> Boy in a China Shop is available in paperback from all good bookshops now. The latest series of The Great Pottery Throwdown continues on Channel 4, while Keith will be going on tour at the end of May. And to find out even more about Keith, go to keithbrimerjones.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews on our Instagram page, materialmatters.design, and you can find all the podcasts I've done, sign up to our newsletter, and lots of other stuff up to our website, materialmatters.design. Finally, and this is really important too, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash materialmatters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. You'll also get an invite to the VIP evening of the fair in September. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. 
Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Next week, I'll be chatting with architect Summer Islam, co-founder of Material Cultures, about why the construction industry needs to build with biomaterials. So, that's it. Thanks very much for listening.